It is an honor to deliver this just after Dion Brand delivered her beautiful lecture in poetic prose. Of course, she came after several white folks, mostly men, and Thompson Highway. I also get that I came after Thompson Highway, even though Cree writer Randy Lundy wrote many years ago about the misogyny in Thompson Highway's work, and even though my children's Cree grandmother, Margaret White, scolded him publicly for writing about Indigenous women as he did in Cree. I am also aware that I stand on the shoulders of unrecognized greatness. First there is my ta'a, and second the Princess of Peace, Mary Agnes Capilano. Then comes my amazing mother, and of course my grandfather, Chief Dan George, the first spoken word artist who created poetry blended with music in Canada. Calcerton Sipas Capilano, Marie Rose Smith, and Eloise Street. Among the modern writers of today, I cherish Dion Brand as this country's greatest poet and thinker. No language is neutral. I do not stand on her shoulders as I came into this world of publishing before her. We stood together at the International Feminist Book Fair in Montreal, and I see myself standing with her now. But I get that you put her first. In general, Canada puts Indigenous writers, particularly Indigenous women, last. Hugh McLennan in The Writer's Life says, as every Canadian knows, the first European to strike North America above Florida was Jacques Cartier. Never mind that our stories have you here thousands of years before, along with Africans and Chinese. Mr. McLennan has Cartier standing on Montréal and seeing the forest. Obviously, Cartier did not turn around or he would have seen the cornfields of the Wyandot, Iroquois who allied with the French colonialists over the British. He then discusses the history of conquest of Turtle Island without mentioning colonialism. No one was listening to Katsalanok or reading Calcerton Seapass and Elwa's Street, or E. Pauline Johnson or Marie Rose Smith. I do not accept it, but I get it. Conquest is understandable, but not acceptable. I get it because if you accept that we are here first, then you would lose your place here, and all this conquest would be for naught. Although I'm grateful for an opportunity to speak, I am still aware of how irrelevant you have made us in order to believe in your pursuit of religious freedom, raison d'etre, that masks colonialism. I'm invited into your space in an honoring way, despite the continued murder of indigenous women, some of whom are my relations. I'm always grateful to be honored. Dion Brand's call, no language is neutral. Stalo response, Every word originates in a body. Every word is a call to action, to movement, to being, a salutation to the stars, an address to the world, to the skies, the waters, and all our relations. Today, yesterday, tomorrow. No call song can disappear. No word is ever unheard. This is the Margaret Lawrence Lecture. It behooves me to talk about her. As a young person, I had to read two books for school, Tom Sawyer by Mark Twain 
and The Diviners by Margaret Lawrence. Both were considered exceptional. Once or twice a class, our English instructor chose one of us to read aloud. I was asked to read a page from each work. In Tom Sawyer, I read about Injun Joe. I thought, okay, this could be coincidental and not part of some racist plot. Then we came to the diviners, and I had to read about the violence of the dirty half-breed. My mother reminds me that dirty half-breed was her personal designation, just as dirty Indian or dirty squaw was mine. Lawrence referred to this wild alcoholic man as dirty half-breed more than once. I seriously wanted to count the times she framed him this way, got halfway through the book and realized I was reading it again and stopped. That was the call. My response? I am woman. I used the word colonialism and I am woman as often as I could, which, by the way, was a bestseller at the Feminist Book Fair in Montreal in 1988. It is still one of my bestsellers and recently was shortlisted for Canada Reads after more than 40 years on the market. I prayed she did not win. She was old. It would have been embarrassing to go more than 40 years unnoticed and then gain accolades. Not a big fan of Margaret Lawrence. Reading The Diviners and its half-breeding class once was enough for me. The character in The Diviners was the father of the main character's daughter, whom the daughter loved. I had a copy of that book, tattered and well-read. Well, there were no indigenous writers then, people responded. Of course there were. There were several. E. Pauline Johnson, Tales of Vancouver, in which my ancestors, Agnes, the Princess of Peace, and Capilano, told the stories although Johnson left out Mary Agnes as one of the storytellers, because the white women publishing it said no one would purchase a book that was co-authored by an indigenous woman. I also owned a copy of Calcerton Surpass, an Elwes Street's book, Sipas Poems. There was Jeanette Armstrong's great-aunt Kogawea, Morning Dove, and Salish author Darcy McNichol, all of whom published long before Lawrence. The mother in the diviners loved her daughter so much that she wanted her daughter to have nothing to do with her father. Mothers who keep their daughters from their fathers always surprise me, as daughters who have a relationship with their fathers always do better than those who have no relationship with them at all. In Stalo territory, no one has the right to separate a child from their relations no matter what the reason. Again, no matter what the reason. Some of our people tell me we should reclaim the word squaw and half-breed. That is a call song. Here is my response. I repeat squaw over and over. It fails to become a positive. I feel it. Dismantle my being. Shred my fragile gratitude. Gratitude is critical to being human. Small part of the larger universe. As we are the same as the snowflake on a glacier, only gratitude connects us. I have been told that Lawrence changed the way we look at indigenous people by drawing our attention to how the mother of this child saw the father. When they say that, they exclude the very people of which they speak, me. 
The people saying this appear to be convinced that I did not understand Lawrence's intention, and they take great pains to explain it to me. No language is neutral, I whisper, Dion's clarion call. Their good intentions do not matter. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. The road to my hell, which is the murder of indigenous women, is covered with good intentions, the intent to civilize, Christianize, and Anglicize. It had an objective, not to pursue religious freedom, but to occupy this land. If religious freedom had been the purpose of this trip to Turtle Island, our faith systems would not have been attacked with such vigor. To speculate what is going on in the mind of another being is a violation of Stalo law. So all this imagining about Lawrence's intention would be lawless for me. So I do not do it. It is gossip to pretend to discuss someone else's intentions. So I do not do it. I go with these words. Voices sing songs. Cardinal, blue jay, raven, caw in unison not saying the same thing. This reminds me of listening. First, believe that what they say is true for them. Then take it on a journey through my story. Then take what connects it to their story. I leave what I do not need. By seeing, by turning around to look at someone else's truth from all directions, I ferret out the best truth for me, even if it hurts. What is missing from the settler's good intentions or good words is the desire to cease to exclusively occupy my homeland and allow us to occupy and use that same homeland. Further, the desire to anglicize our language came with odd caveats. First, we were not to translate ourselves into English. We were to anglicize by leaving our language behind. We were to learn to story Cinderella without laughing our ass off because the family is so ridiculous and the story so completely unbelievable. Who would willfully clean out a chimney is beyond us. At six years old, this was too late for me to read and change my stalo beginnings. I already had a voice. We are shaped by then. In fact, Katsalanok had told me the summer before I went to school, the world is yours, child, go get it. I had argued successfully with him. I then walked a terribly lonely journey to maturity. I never argued with an elder again. Force and isolation tagged along with anglicization. No parent wants their child to be isolated and then beaten for letting a word slip out that the foreigners did not understand. So many parents stopped speaking their language to their children. This separated us from each other. It separated the grandchildren from their ta'as, their teachers, their backbone, and we became fractured. Those who spoke the language knew the stories. Those who did not struggled with the culture and the world surrounding them fell apart from the inside. We know the strangers came for land, fur, and to build a world on top of ours. Our removal, erasure, was necessary. 
I want to say it was unsuccessful, but that would not be entirely true. No matter how much knowledge about our world we have to teach Indigenous studies, we must have a degree, preferably a Ph.D., which means 20 years of European cultural indoctrination. We must use books by indoctrinated people, and we must teach critical thinking. No language is neutral. Words are sacred. They have power. They have impact. Mamus Gallant refers to English as incomparable. Without knowing a single one of our languages, she says this with authority and is believed. Every man wants a wife. Not every man, not the sea slug. We cherish the life of this sea slug. He transforms from man to woman and impregnates himself as he does so. After the children mature, she returns to his former self. We celebrate in song and dance and ceremony this magic of nature. I watch enthralled as a child. Someone once told me that we were all brought up in a homophobic society, even the stalo. I do not tell her about the sea slug. She lacks the required respect and belief in me to accept the power of that story. Heterosexuality, dominance, entitlement without power— Class, disarray, and humiliation, shame, hurt, trauma is rooted in the above. In our entitled selves, we cannot face ourselves. We cannot rectify or reconcile with ourselves or transform anything about us. Settler colonialism places us beneath the sea slug in their hierarchy. Gallant knows nothing about this, but she feels entitled to pretend to know and declare who we are and who we are not. Good intentions, fractious results. Our parents told us our stories over and over, four times, once in the womb, once in the first year of life, again at five or six years, and again as we entered puberty. This too stopped for many of us, but not all of us. Some parents hid their children from residential school and educated them in the language and in story. Despite being schooled separately, we could not stop sharing. We could not stop being who we are. We could not stop socializing with ourselves, our large extended families, and for this our children were beaten. Eventually we struggled with being, it was like stopping the heart from beating every time a white person was within earshot. Some of us betrayed ourselves and let go of everything. Stillborn nations lie in disarray. Our voices fell on your deaf ears, dissipated in the air we breathed, disappeared before you like our bodies. Most of us could not betray ourselves. My family could not. My great-grandmother could not stop being who she was. My ta'a was a medicine gatherer, a story worker, and a healer. I spent most of my time with her. My mother was always busy trying to make a living, as was my father, so we could eat. This is how we were before anyone came. Fathers, who were also our uncles and cousins, etc., 
gathered food, built houses, canoes, brought firewood, hunted fish, while elders care took and educated the children. My ta'a hung out with other elders who spoke to one another, then cited a story to back up everything they were saying. This backup was so we knew what a stalo was and how we came to be who we are and will always want to be. I learned these stories and I learned them in the context of knowing, being and thinking. My brothers and sisters were sometimes there with me. We all came out of that experience fully stalo and unchangeable. It is from these stories that I write. I am often asked which author influenced me most. There was only one Stalo author, and I did not learn of him until much later. There were just conjurers and rememberers of story. These stories were not written down, so the keepers did not get to call, be called authors. So the answer is none. I have to say that one of the men said he was always a writer ever since he could remember. He wrote in his mind. He's not a mother or he would have known that is how all children are. We come into this world with our imagination fully alive. No language is neutral, articulates me. It does not influence me. It articulates me. I articulate myself through the door that Brand recognized and held open for all of us. The children in my family were all born with our eyes wide open, our minds working. We thought about things, even as toddlers, as did my children. I remember my thoughts from before I was two years old. I remember the stories these thoughts are connected to, and I remember whose understanding I preferred. As I aged, I realized our stories had a few sides to them. Medicine, sociology, politics, law, and governance. I also realized that my elders had a few sides to them. One was a storyteller, another a teacher, another a healer, a botanist, an environmentalist, a warrior, and depending on their sides, they derived their own meaning from stories. There was never any debate about what that story meant to a single individual. Each understanding was accepted. Understandings were not combative, nor was understanding individual. When I asked my ta'a about that, she would answer, It is who we are, Siam. As children, my family struggled with this during school. I was not entitled to an opinion or an understanding until I accepted the instructor's understanding. Then I could add my own, which only served to verify the instructor's point of view. I became clear that I was adding stories to their houses rather than rafters to my own. How childish is the adult who requires the assurance of the children they teach? Fundamentally, Twain and Lawrence were the settlers, the heroic battlers of racism with their dirty half-breed, Injun Joe and Negger Jim. It was as if the influence of Huck Finn created W.E.B. Dubois, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Kathleen Cleaver, and Angela Y. Davis did not exist. One of my most respected friends is black. 
her daughter was forced to read Tom Sawyer whenever Tom was talking about nigger Jim. It still goes on. My granddaughter was called upon to write a short story about Nellie McClung, the mother of the vote for Canadian white women and the mother of sterilization of indigenous women. As an officer of the Order of Canada, I was asked to attend a celebration of a Canadian woman in the name of the famous five of which Nellie McClung is at the top of the list. I did not go. It is impossible to define these books as good books if you are Indigenous, as you are the subject of humiliation and disparagement in them. Nothing good about that. To those who tell me that these two authors used racism to try and defeat it, I tell you, well then, those authors were not speaking to me. They were exploiting my body to help white folks, and Franz Fanon and Jean-Paul Sartre already wrote about that. Should we take it off the shelf? I'm not in favor of deleting any aspect of history, literary or otherwise. Should we advocate not to read them to those who are the subject of degradation? I think not. But there's a long distance from iconizing them and leaving them on the shelf for everyone to choose to read. We need to teach the history of racism in literature. To understand the history of racism in colonial literature is not necessary to put forward racist texts as required reading. Wider choices about what to read and how to explore and discover the content of what they read should be foremostly considered. Choice is sacred. Students can research racism in the history of literature. This way, the writings that are racist become part of the research. Oral cultures can become part of the exploration. The written and oral become word art. Canadians are represented by many peoples, many languages, many cultures, and diverse forms of word art. In the lower grades, students could be introduced to a wide range of historical word art. Our libraries could be stocked with books and orality by many different peoples of color, not as footnotes to white writers. They should be stocked with indigenous books, and there should be oral libraries. People of color and indigenous people are not special interest groups. Indigenous people are turtle islanders and were the subject of conquest, murder, and disinheritance. We have a long history here. The first democracy in the world began here long before the settlers arrived. Story as guide and healing begins here. As the conquered endangered by the conquerors, we have become last on everyone's list of what to read. I cannot count the number of times I have heard that there are no indigenous books in the library because there are limited funds for book purchase. This is an admission that you purchase us last. It does not occur to librarians that we should be purchased first. Shame. I Am Woman was not promoted by the publisher or librarians as the bestseller that it was. Although Indigenous women published more than a decade ahead of their counterparts, we are behind them in recognition. It feels as though we are more likely to be raped or murdered than read. 
Marilyn Dumont once said, if you want to be a writer and you're an Indigenous woman, you're going to have a hard time. I think getting published and sold is what she means. I started writing when I was nine years old, and the poem I wrote was not published until I was 41. Fortunately, my name is Lee, L-E-E, which is the male form of the spelling of the name Lee, L-E-I-G-H. My family did not know that, so when I sent a story or a poem out, it was often accepted. Bobby Lee did well, but when people saw me, they were disappointed I was not a man. In the beginning, my audiences were largely male, but today they are largely female. My stories are still the kind of stories I wanted to write when I was young. I wanted to write in English as a stalo. I have had to alter the nature of story to do that. I had to return to older meanings of words, but I'm entitled to do that. We tell old stories that though it were happening today, and this is how we create new story. This is part of how we work with story, and I want to tell you more about that and what I hope you do when you explore my work. Story is governance, so when we hear a good story, we look for the teaching in it without mentioning the creator, author. Then we conjure a new story different but the same. We know we have succeeded when our audience gets excited. We also, as we listen, seek to add to the story, to shift the direction of the story and challenge the teller to create a new one from our interventions. The creator is also the audience. Understanding story is the point. Recreating life from that understanding is the goal. Further, creation of story is also a collective enterprise. Individualism is solitary. We sing and create poetry together. We create drama together. We form a circle and insist each of us respond to an aspect of the story, poem, play, or the scene that struck us. We take it on a journey through our lives, our history, our sense of self, and engage each other in discussion of that. We create poetry, song, and story from that. We lay out tobacco and ask our ancestors to help. I do not ever create story alone. It's not a lonely enterprise. When I call on my ancestors to help me create this next story, they come. When I'm finished and I reread it, I sometimes am amused by identifying who helped me create this fiction. Every story is destined to become part of our lexicon of mythology, and we strive to be myth-makers. Though we do not iconize the Creator, we appreciate the new myth they conjure. We are not concerned about the narrator, not in the ways others are, because sometimes the narrator shifts. If Celia is taking responsibility for some aspect of Celia's song, then she is the narrator. If her sister Stacy is taking responsibility for the next aspect of the story, then she becomes the narrator. If it is the author, then the story simply unfolds. For instance, in the flood story, some community members leave and join up with the mound people. Ten thousand years later, a woman and the man she loves return. The narrator becomes the woman, and the dancer becomes the lover, and they return together. 
This section of the story begins with, I have loved you all these years. I'm taking you home after all this time. We will begin again. There has been a great deal of speculation about the way I write. I write as close as possible to the way we speak. In fact, more than one of my books is wholly oral. Our children do not simply learn a story. They learn an old story from our history, and then they tell their elders what they think it means when they make up a new one with the same meaning, characters, etc., issues, tension, etc., as the original. My children do this. This is our way of creating new myth-makers. They can do so as prose, drama, or in poetry. Our children can speak in poetry from a very young age as a result, and they never face writer's block. Because story dances on their skin, words are always there. Now we go to European schools and are bamboozled by what we are asked to do with the story we have just heard. Why would we repeat some fiction about what we think the author means? Why would we engage in gossip and speculation about what goes on in the mind of another person? Isn't it the story that's important? If only one school of thought about story is permitted in the world, then other schools are ipso facto inferior. So here we are, people of color and indigenous people struggling to learn to tell stories the way Europeans have defined them based on European social order. That order is hierarchical, individualistic, and warlike, so the nature of story is conflict between those of great importance. Very few indigenous people have this as the basis for story creation. Those who manage to leave themselves behind and do learn to tell stories the way Europeans do are touted as great writers. Some of the men who whizzed by us and collected awards long after women were published may fit this bill. When we do choose to try and write like you, it gets convoluted. The conflict in highways work is social in nature, hardly visible, except that the characters, while being loving, do not seem to care for each other. That is the nature of internalized colonialism. Note, I am not saying that Thompson is internally colonialist. I am saying it is the material he is working with. It is our reality. There are a lot of ways to story up our condition of being the colonized who have been led out of the gate of prohibition, but not the economically oppressed, landless, and deculturated state of being. The transmitters of culture are women. That was true a thousand years ago. It still is true today. The child-rearers and teachers are women. That was true a thousand years ago. It is still true today. The storytellers were both men and women educated by women. That was true a thousand years ago. It is still true today. Men are the managers of relations between the nation and other nations. They focus on the history of colonialism and colonial relations. That was true a thousand years ago, and it is still true today. If you want to know who we are, read Dumont, Simpson, Half, Armstrong, Campbell, Baker, Demeline, Vermeth, Bob, Carter, Miracle, and Mailhot, to name just a few of the great women writers who have articulated our condition 
and the cultural road out. Thompson wanders between the great men writers who have articulated the inconvenient Indian, King, and the women writers. I'm not saying that it is bad to read the men. I am saying that if you do not read the women, you will not know who we are. No language is neutral. This is Turtle Island. You cannot get away from that reality. We are colonized by your nation. Renaming it was the first act of colonial territorial domination. Accepting that this is the second act of domination, giving us space at the colonial table will not change it. Although excluding us reaffirms it. Not that you should not offer the space, but we should not have to comply with your rules of order, story, hierarchy, narrative, pain. We should bring ourselves fully to the table through our own stories. We cannot be limited to just a seat. Some European once wrote that she hesitated to call Ravensong a novel. Newsflash! I do not give any European the authority to define what a novel is for me. And an indigenous male scholar once said, That is too bad because I really like that story. He did not feel like me. He accepted the European interpretation, but was sad because he liked the story. He did not even notice that he accepted it as story. This makes for some interesting literary schizophrenia among our scholars. This is colonial impact in the world of scholarship and literature, and everyone should be aware of it. In Memory Serves and Other Oratories and in Leanne Simpson's work, we dance back and forth between our sense of scholarly expression and our own. We do this so you can understand what we are saying, not because we think your scholarly expression is what counts. As one of this country's greatest writers, Dion Brand, says, No language is neutral. No language is neutral. When you use any language, you should know who you're addressing, representing, and ultimately holding up. You should not require the colonized to help you. You should recognize that we have put down our daisy aprons, as C.J. would say, and do not wish to serve you. I'm often asked to solve the riddle of decolonizing scholarship and literature. I have no idea. Decolonization is about land and power. Sharing a podium is about hearing each other out and sharing belief in the words of the other, so long as no insult is attached to belief. How do you learn to share the podium? I have no idea how to answer that. In the longhouse, we can interrupt the speaker any time and add to the story. In fact, if you do not, the old folks don't believe you are listening. I do know that you likely have more books by men than women, that even though Indigenous women have been writing for much longer than Indigenous men, we are last after the award-winning men on your list. The awards were handed out by yourselves, and then the men you gave them to joined the exclusive club, and so the women went unrecognized for a very long time. Is this not embarrassing to you? Many book buyers are female, and most books sold are written by men. Is this not embarrassing to you? Please do not write me and tell me 
that you always buy women's books. You also attend libraries that are heavily weighted toward men and that employ largely women. Schools are full of books by men over women, and your children attend school from K to Ph.D. Bookstores are full of books. Go there and count the numbers of women as opposed to men. Check out how many are Indigenous women. Have you asked the owners, your family, your friends, the libraries, the book reviewers, scholars, and schools if their libraries are balanced? Are you afraid to know about us? Is it necessary to put Indigenous women last? Will this ensure the longevity of colonialism? This holding up white male patriarchy? Will it ensure that all those women who learn to write like men continue to take pride in it? I would add something to Dion Brand's brilliant presentation. That guy should have said, you write like a white man, because that is the man who defined writing for the world. Breath is wind. Wind is voice. Voice is power. Voice wants an ear to listen. Voice wants a human to care. Voice wants a body to respond. But even should no one hear, even should no one listen, even should no one respond, expressing oneself is power. My desire, whether slaked or no by another, once expressed, fills me with the strength to move from it. I am powerful as I express. My expression comes from a long line of stalwart women committed to voice, committed to song, dance, being, depends upon Stalo commitment. You live on Turtle Island. Where is your familiarity with the voice of its women?